Be Christ's Church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke Podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Lord, you didn't have to tell us who you are. You didn't have to tell us about our condition and that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And you didn't have to send Jesus, but Lord, you did it all. You made it all possible. And God, what we've experienced this morning is just a, just a little foretaste of what we'll get to do for eternity. We'll get to exert our energy and dig deep and, and sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs forever about the greatness of our God and King who, is, who has won the victory through his death. Lord, you, you have written the most beautiful, amazing story and you've made us a part of it through faith in Jesus. And God, if there's anyone here today who's not yet a part of that story, I, I pray, God, that they would stop today trying to be the hero, stop trying to be the center of the story, and that you would show them a new way to live through saving faith in Christ. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Esther chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 9. Uh, and before we do that, I'm going to share with you just a, a little bit in the way of introduction. Last week, we saw that Esther got a, a two-feast plan. She fasted uh, the people of God. There's a decree of destruction against the people of God. And She's a, a Jewish woman who has not yet disclosed her identity, and she happens to be married to the king. And Mordecai tells her, hey, you need to go to the king. She's like, I don't think so. But then she's like, yep, that's right. That's what I'm supposed to do. So she calls for a three-day fast. And uh, in this time of fasting, she discerns God's plan, the will of the Lord, and it, it includes two feasts. But at the end of the first feast, everything seems great. The king is hanging on her every word. He's like, what do you want? And, and if... You, or if Esther's like me, I should say, she probably was tempted to go, you know what, forget the two feasts, let's just go ahead and ask the king. But, but the fundamentals, the underlying fundamentals uh, haven't really changed. The king still doesn't even know she's Jewish. The king still thinks Haman is the greatest thing in the world, even though he wants to kill all the Jews. And so Esther teaches us a lesson, and the lesson is this. When we work God's plan, we are walking in faith. When we work God's plan, we are walking in faith. We saw that last week. But now today, we're going to see sort of the opposite of that in the life of Haman. We can pursue God's plan or we can pursue our plans. We can pursue our own glory and our own agenda. And we see that in the life of Haman. But when we do that, it's kind of like Virginia Tech running the classic five-yard pitch to the backfield on third and two to the short side of the field. It's just not going to work. It's going to fail every single time. When they call that play, I just turn off the television. It, it, it's just, if they would take it out of the playbook, I would be much happier. I'm just saying. But, but that's what Haman's doing. He's trying to work against the purposes of God. Esther is depending on the Lord to deliver God's people, and Haman is doing everything he can to stop it. 
Now, he doesn't even understand that, right? He doesn't know about the promised Messiah through the line of the Jews, as far as we know. And Dowden is helpful here, a commentator. He says this, Satan makes plans all the time for the destruction of God's people and then uses other people to carry them out. You see, Haman probably had no clue that Satan was at work in his life to attempt to wipe out the line of the Hebrews that would lead to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, we can, if we're not careful, get stuck on ourselves and our own agenda, rather than God's agenda for His church and His people, we can unwittingly, just like Haman, be used by Satan to undermine the plan of God. Would you hear with me the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. He's, he's leaving the first feast, right? He's a happy man. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh, And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet... All this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Verse 14. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. I want to show you four truths to avoid becoming a part of Satan's work to try and undermine God's plan. We're going to use Haman as a foil for the Christian. If you you want to be proactively involved in the plan of God, Haman shows us four things not to do. Does that make sense? So I'm going to flip those negatives into positives. And the first thing that that Haman shows us by negative example in verse 9 is that if you don't want to get duped by Satan and roped in to undermining God's plan in the world, the first thing you've got to do is find your ultimate joy in Christ alone. When Esther asked for that second feast, the fundamentals of the situation are the same. Haman is still the king's favorite. Esther's still a Jew. The king still has zero appreciation for Mordecai. And Haman, as we've just read, is incredibly full of himself. So when the first feast ends, we are still waiting to see how God is going to neutralize Haman and his wicked plan. And the first thing we see happening after the first feast doesn't seem to me at all like God is working all things out for the good of those who love Him and for those who are called according to His purpose, Romans 8, 28. That's a promise, right? If you're in Christ, if you know God, if you're a believer, He's going to work all things out for good, for those who love Him, for those who are called according to His purpose. But Esther, she works the first feast plan. Haman goes out of the feast, and before he gets out of the king's courtyard, he encounters Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't give him tribute or honor, and now Haman is furious all over again. What good did the first feast do? Seemingly nothing. And I don't know about you, but that encourages me. 
Because sometimes in my life, I feel like I'm doing exactly what God has told me to do in His Word. And as soon as I lean in to doing what God called me to do, no matter what, things get worse, not better. Any of y'all been there? You know what? I'm going to stop being a knuckle-headed husband, and I'm going to put my wife first, and then my marriage gets worse, not better. What happened? God, I, I, I wanted to honor you, and then things didn't immediately improve, and I, I, I'm, I'm at work, and there's the water cooler talk about our knuckle-headed boss that they brought in, and, and she thinks she's God's gift to everything, but she doesn't know anything, and everybody's around the water cooler just talking about how bad the boss is all the time, and you know what? Then I decide I'm not going to be that because I'm a believer. And God told me to work heartily as unto the Lord, no matter who my master is. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve my boss. I'm going to love my boss. And, and she doesn't magically improve overnight. In fact, she got worse and asked for 17 more reports. I'm glad to see the timeline working out in Esther as it does, that sometimes when we lean into God's plan doesn't mean miracles happen right away and everything gets better and life is a bed of roses. In fact, sometimes God will allow it to get worse before it gets better to see if you really trust Him. Are you really going to lean into Him or did you just want a better situation in your life right away? Are you really going to go long and deep with Jesus or did you just tip your hat to Jesus long enough to improve your life and then move on and do whatever you wanted to do? When the feast concludes, some things seem good. Verse 9, Haman is joyful and glad of heart. Maybe a good opportunity for her to make her request the next day. But like King Ahasuerus in chapter 1, while he's intoxicated with wine and his self-importance, his joy is evaporated in mere milliseconds because he encounters Mordecai. And when he encounters Mordecai, once more he is filled with wrath. The exact same thing we saw back in chapter 3. Did you know we can be like Haman? We can be filled with joy as God's plan is unfolding, but the moment that His plan calls for us to do something that we're going to have to decrease so that Jesus can increase, we can get our knickers in a knot. Man, I liked what the pastor was talking about until he said that. And as long as we were worshiping in the sanctuary, it was good, but now we might have to move the gym. Uh-uh! The moment that we are called to decrease so that Jesus can increase, is a moment of real testing. In the moments that you've got to lay down your pride, or your prerogatives, or your privileges, for the sake of the gospel, is a moment that you have an opportunity to know and to learn if your joy comes from knowing Jesus and serving Jesus no matter what it costs, or if it really comes from using the church as a place to elevate yourself in your own interest and have your own little fan club. Haman's God is the praise of other people. He's the second highest ranking official in the kingdom, but if one person fails to honor him, even a person that he has a decree to murder a few months later, he just can't handle it. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you went from joy to explosive rage? What was the, what was the trigger? Might have been that five-yard pitch to the short side of the field. Might have been that person that cut you off. 
Might have been your daughter taking far too long to fix her hair. Love you. (laughs) What do those triggers in your life say about something that you're putting ahead of Jesus and the joy that comes from Him? In a moment, Haman's joy becomes rage because his joy is centered on himself and his agenda and his glory. And when the world is all about you, your joy is very fragile. When your world is all about you, your joy can erode as fast as Haman's did. If we're going to be positively involved in God's plan, we've got to seek joy outside of ourselves. Not in the things of this world, but in Christ crucified for us. Dowden says this, earthly pleasure. Pleasures and possessions lack the weightiness and worthiness to sustain our joy forever. And the reality is, the things of this world that bring us joy, it's so fleeting, after 30 seconds after it starts, it ends. But there is a joy, church, that never disappoints. And it is the joy of knowing and belonging to Jesus and being a part of His plan to glorify His Son. Jesus tells His disciples on the way to the cross, do you remember what He says? He says, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. You say, but pastor, I live in a difficult world. There's sin and there's sickness and there's death and there's disease. Make no mistake, right now there are things that can diminish your joy, but they can't rob you of your joy if you've been given the Holy Spirit of God who makes you new on the inside because Jesus came to give you true, real joy. What kind of joy? John Piper defines it best when he says, it is the joy that Jesus brings which is from outside the world. It is the very joy, listen to this, that Jesus himself has in God the Father. How much joy does the Son have in the Father? Eternal bliss and delight. It is a joy that he's had from all eternity and will have forever. And when you trust in Christ, he gives you the joy of Son and Father on the inside. To be used by God. The first thing we must do, church, is we must fight our idols daily and find our joy in Christ alone. But the second thing we must do is we must measure, we must measure our lives by our identity in Christ and not by worldly significance. We've got to measure our identity by whose we are, not what we do. In verse 10, Haman pulls himself together after encountering Mordecai, and he goes home. But we know he's still deeply bothered because he, he calls all his friends over to have a party where they can tell him just how great he is. One, one pastor says it this way, What Haman craved, above all, was not simply significance, but rather being seen to be significant. It wasn't enough for him to have significance, and clearly he's significant. He's the second-ranking person in the kingdom. But if one person doesn't see it and acknowledge it, his whole world comes crumbling down. So Haman does exactly what he learned to do from the king at the beginning of the story. You remember how Esther begins with a 180-day party where the king tells everyone how great he is. 
And then verses, in verses 11 and 12, what does Haman do? He boasts of his padded portfolio, his prolific progeny, his plentiful promotions, his prestigious position, and his privileged invitations to Esther's unprecedented private parties. He gets it all. He's got assets, accolades, and achievements. Haman is very familiar with those things. And that's what pride does to the human heart. It gets you wrapped up in everything that you've done and gets you ignoring all that Christ has done. I suppose that if Haman lost his thumb drive with his resume on it, that he could have reproduced it from memory. No problem. Every statistic, every bullet point, every achievement. Clearly, he's a significant man. But to him, his significance isn't enough. His significance had to be known. It had to be felt. It had to be appreciated. It had to be recognized by all. He's the kind of guy that when he walked into the room, he wanted you to genuflect and go, oh, I'm in the presence of greatness. Like Satan himself, Haman wanted a glory reserved for God alone. Haman is nothing like the Apostle Paul after he's converted. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3? I was uh, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was an eighth day, or I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was blameless according to the righteousness that comes by the law. But I took all of that and I counted it as dung. It was like garbage to me and I traded all that in for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ and Him crucified and the surpassing riches of knowing Him. And he goes on to say in verse 13, forgetting what is behind. Does that mean he's forgetting his past sins? No, because Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. What is he forgetting about? He's forgetting what he did yesterday. He says, what I did for, for the kingdom of God yesterday, what I did for Jesus yesterday, that's like nothing compared to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that I'm pursuing. And one day, I'll fall at his feet and I'll worship him face to face. I press on for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That is my aim. It is not to accumulate accolades and assets for, for you to be impressed by who I am. I'm impressed by one, and it is King Jesus alone. That's what Paul says. But church, we live in a Haman kind of world. We live in a world where kids are trained to find their significance in the world's recognition of what they can do. You got to be the best pitcher. You got to be the best shortstop. The world is training our kids to look at what they can do to find their significance, their GPA, their athletic prowess, what neighborhood they live in, the brand of shoes that they wear, the kind of ball glove that their parents can afford to get them, and on and on and on. And I want to urge you, if you're a Christian parent today, don't get wrapped up in that mess. Yes, work hard in school. Yes, work as hard as you can at your sport and at your craft, but that is not your identity. It just isn't. You don't have to be the best. You don't have to be the fastest. You don't have to be the greatest because compared to Jesus, it's nothing, and He gives you true life and true identity. All those other things, I'm telling you, they fade I used to be a really good runner, and now I'm sucking wind trying to run a 10-minute mile. They fade. They fade so fast. Look at verse 13. 
Haman says all the accomplishments, even his many sons, are worth nothing to him if one person, Mordecai the Jew, doesn't recognize his greatness. Haman is the sort of guy who would blow a fuse over being left out of one conversation. He had made public recognition his idol, and when he didn't receive it, he turned to boasting in order to bolster his pride. And you know, church, we're not immune to being derailed by our prideful need for recognition. Seeking glory for ourselves can become a cancer in our lives, in our homes, and in the church. It can be a cancer in the church that leads to cliques, and misunderstandings, and hurt feelings, and even house parties that we call fellowship groups, where people gather their friends around to tell them how great they are. Is this still on? Just making sure it's still working. Pride leads us to believe the lie that our significance comes from what we do rather than what Christ has done. It leads us to take great offense when our opinion doesn't win the day. When someone has an idea we didn't think of that's better than our own. Or when we have to lay down being the center of the show so people can see the Savior. Or we have to make way for a new attender or a new member. Or God, somebody brings into the life of our church that has a great gift or great talent. And we say, praise the Lord for what He's doing. There's something greater, something different here. All glory be to Christ. It's not about me, it's about Him. But it's a dangerous place to be when we harbor that need for recognition and pride in our heart. Proverbs 16, verse 8 says, Pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. Prime says this, Pride is one of the greatest sins because it makes us treat God's gifts as if they belong to us and were created by us. Listen to this, Pride robs God of His right to be acknowledged as the source of of all the good we know and enjoy. Do you believe that every good thing you have is from the hand of God? Every talent, every ability, every, every opportunity to create and innovate, it is from the good hand of God. So in those moments that you feel most overlooked or disrespected, what if God is actually giving you an opportunity to discern the condition of your own heart rather than to look outwardly at everybody else who's not paying any attention to you? One pastor says this, Our idols are most easily exposed. This is gold, by the way. This is pastoral gold. This is like take a picture of the slide. Our idols are most easily exposed by analyzing our strongest emotions. I didn't come up with that as a pastor who's smarter than me. But he's exactly right. And then he goes on to ask these questions. What is it that causes us to be angry out of proportion to the offense? There is a clue that one of our idols is being threatened. What is it that makes us feel an unusually strong sense of achievement? Oh, I preached a great sermon. I played the piano really well. The, the musical production today was phenomenal. And it was, by the way. What is it that makes you feel like you're on top of the world, that you're king of the world, that you're the greatest? That might actually be an indicator of something that you're putting ahead of Jesus. For me, God has been showing me that I've been making an idol out of my work ethic. I've always prided myself on being a hard worker. I was a valedictorian in my high school class, along with some other people who were much smarter than me, and I knew that. But by golly, I would work there. I would work around them. 
I wasn't the best runner on the team, but I worked like crazy to be up in the mix of the leading runners. And I was proud of that. And you know what God's done in the last month? He's, he's given me some health challenges. And he's given me more than I can do. And I praise God for that. Because He's showing me that my identity is not in my work output. My identity is in Christ alone. So how should we counsel ourselves? How should we preach the gospel to ourselves when pride appears in our hearts seemingly out of nowhere? When we find we are motivated not by the glory of Christ, but by, but by the glory of self, we remember, excuse me, we remember that Jesus died for the proud. We know that God forgives prideful people. We consider Jesus who does not withhold the scepter of acceptance from us because he faced the rod of God's wrath against our pride for us. We remember that the one worthy of all honor came knowing that he would be dishonored by the world to set the world aright. We confess our pride and we remember our identity is not in our successes or in our failures, but in Jesus Christ, the one who, though Lord of all, went to the cross like a lamb led to the slaughter to make us new and invite us to a far better feast than the one that Esther could prepare. A feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We beg in those moments that pride rears its ugly head and we see it or whatever other idol is in our heart. We beg the Spirit of God to write eternity on our minds and to lead us to follow Jesus and His way in the world knowing that no worldly success or fame will ever truly satisfy our hearts. Do you believe that? It's easy for us to be critical of Haman considering all that he had and he was still angry over one minor slight. But I want to ask you, how much more have we received in Christ than Haman did? Folks, in Christ we have forever in the kingdom. The streets of gold are ours. Presence with Christ everlasting is ours. There is nothing that Christ owns that we do not get to have a share in for all eternity. So what is that slight or that oversight or that thing that's bringing you down compared to what awaits you in Christ? It is nothing. So may God give us this morning, wherever we are, whatever's robbing the joy that Christ delights to bring to us, may He cause us to remember what the Lord says in Isaiah 66 verse 2. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Those who make much of Christ will be included in God's plan in a powerful way. And the third thing I want to show you by way of contrast with Haman's life is for that to happen in an ongoing way in our lives. We've got to listen to the right people. Haman didn't have good friends, did he? He calls over his friends to the house party, like, you're great, you're wonderful. Just kill the guy and go feast the next day. That's what he says, right? Just murder the man and then go have a party. Church, what we need to learn from this is we need to listen to people who will not sacrifice God's mission for our ego. 
We need to listen to people who won't sacrifice God's mission for our ego. After Haman vents his anger and his wife and all his friends join the anger party, there's not one friend in his house who says, you know, this is pretty, pretty foolish. You're going to kill the guy in 12 months anyway. Why are you worried about it? But this is the second most powerful man in the world or in the kingdom at that time. A man who will get a decree to kill you if you defy him. So what do his friends do? They just justify his anger. And they tell him, you know what? We should build a gallows. Not a small little gallows. Build a gallows 50 feet high on which to hang Mordecai in the morning. Which would have been quite an overnight construction project for the arrogance of one man. It's not all that different from the Tower of Babel. You remember the story of the Tower of Babel? The nations came together and they built a tower not to make a name for God, but to make a name for themselves. And God had to come down and confuse their language and spread them out. Because there's no good that comes out of glorying in ourselves, but only good that comes out of glorying in God alone. And while I've never seen anyone build a tower when their pride was wounded, I can tell you that as a pastor, I've seen plenty of people try to tear down as much as possible in the name of proving their importance. It shows up in temper tantrums. It shows up when people leave a church in a snit. It shows up on Facebook. It shows up on social media. You would be shocked, or maybe you wouldn't, at what people will do to protect and preserve their pride. They'll build towers. They'll build gallows. The gallows are suggested to protect Haman's perception of his importance, but what he really needed were friends who would confront his pride. The Bible is clear, church. We are not called to manage our sin. We are called to kill our sin. And let, I was, I'm just going to say it. We are called to kill our sin by reflecting on the gospel in the fullness and in the power of the Holy Spirit who leads us to repent and pursue Jesus. You say, well, that's, that's no big deal, I pastor. I understand that, but let me tell you something. Did you know there are counselors in this world who are called Christian counselors who will tell you to manage your sin rather than to kill it? Well, counselor, I'm really dealing with anger in my life. Well, well let me give you an anger management plan. No! Pastor, I'm a... Counselor, I'm addicted to pornography, and I'm looking at pornography all the time. Well, well, let's give you a plan to manage your lust. No. Jesus did not die on a cross for you to manage your anger. Jesus did not hang on a cross for you to manage your lust. He did not hang on a cross for you to manage your financial irresponsibility and your unwillingness to be lavishly generous for the purposes of God. He did not die on a cross for you to check a box and say, Jesus is my Savior, and now I'm going to live the exact same way that I was and feel okay about it because Jesus died for my sin. No! He gave you the Holy Spirit and the power of God to do what Paul says in Colossians 3.5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in us. Put it to death in the power of the Holy Spirit. Conquer it. With the word and the spirit of truth and with good friends who will call you on the carpet when you need to be called on the carpet and you won't say you're not my friend anymore because you spoke truth to me, but thank you, God bless you for telling me the truth about my life. Y'all still with me? I'm sorry it's a little long this morning, but I... We're raising a generation... 
that were so worried about their fragile little egos and so resistant to tell them the truth about their, their hearts that were missing opportunities as Christian parents to disciple our children when they're young. I wonder how many kids' lives have been harmed by parents who thought they were helping their kids out by propping up their fragile little egos while missing big opportunities to point out the pride in their hearts and point them to their need for Jesus. How many temper tantrums does a kid have to throw before you say it's enough? This world's not about you. Oh, you don't understand my kid, his problem, his condition. Yeah, I do. It's called sin. It's called sin. And there's a lot of Christian homes that parents have adult discipline disorder. I, I'm, I'm telling you. If we don't hold the line and point to Christ lovingly from an early age, we ought not be surprised at the fruit that we reap. Now, I'm not saying there aren't times and seasons where other factors are in play, but I've been around the block long enough to tell you when parents throw up their hands and don't discipline, I can tell you where things are headed. I wonder how many churches have been wrecked by Haman's operating under a different name. People who glory not in Christ but in themselves. People who want others to recognize their importance, their position, their title. People who will cut you out of their lives unless you fuel their pride and fawn over their perceived greatness at every turn. People who are keeping score all the time, always trying to find an angle, never understanding that the cross of Christ gives us a whole new scoreboard. It's not about what you did for me lately, what I did for you lately, I, I got on this committee, or I got to do this thing, because Jesus throws the scoreboard away. Because the scoreboard was, I owed Jesus, I owed God everything, I owed Him a debt paid in hell for eternity. Jesus came and went to the cross for me, and so here's the scoreboard. Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. So for a moment... So for a moment, allow me to be a biblical counselor. Is there any way that you are elevating your interest above the needs or interests of those around you? Are the people around you only valuable to you if they contribute to your agenda? And if they fail to do so, can you, like Haman, just dispose of those relationships? Haman was willing to build a gallows 50 feet high, murder him in the morning, and go to the feast that afternoon. Can you, like Haman, plan to kill or cut off someone from your life because of an oversight and then go feast joyfully? If you can, you might be serving the wrong king. Because I serve a king who came to be crucified to welcome me to his feast. Church, we need people in our lives who will speak the truth and love to us. People who will hold up God's word like a mirror and help us see ourselves clearly. People who will call us out by calling us to behold an infinitely greater Savior. We've got to have good friends in our life who will call us out if we're going to be a part of the plan of God. Fourthly, 
we see in Haman's life that we need to understand the Lord wins whether we choose to be positively involved in his plan or not. God is going to prevail no matter what. You can join him or you can reject him. But God's going to win. He's going to get his Messiah to the world and he's going to save people in the process. Had Haman, imagine for a moment, if Haman had been confronted about his sinful anger, if he had reconsidered his ways and he had went to the second feast and he said, excuse me, Esther, I have a confession to make. I've been a jerk. And I don't know if you realize it or not. I don't know what your relationship is to Mordecai. I think he was your adoptive father some time ago. He has really annoyed me and I have way overreacted and I just wanted to apologize about that. Tell the king, imagine how much different things would have been for Haman. But he doesn't. Indeed, Haman's wrong-headed wrath is used by God to advance his plan. In fact, the Lord uses everything that happens to Haman as a part of reversing the situation for God's people to get his son into the world. When Esther included Haman at the feast, his pride swelled. When Mordecai refused to honor him at the king's gate, he became angry. When Haman received bad counsel from bad friends, he constructed the gallows for Mordecai. And as we'll see in chapter 6, guess who hangs on the gallows? Haman and his pride. The truth, church, is this. The Lord wins either way. And we've got to get over our fragile egos and our sinful pride and lay it down for the glory of the one who came to take our place. Jesus became a nobody to die and raise sinners to life. Are you following the path of Haman, who planned to be a somebody and died forever? Or are you trusting in the one who died so that you can take up your cross and follow Jesus and live forevermore? Those are the options. King Jesus, for the glory of your name, get Haman out of our hearts, we pray. Amen. Would you bow with me? God in heaven. We thank you that Haman's plan did not prevail. And God, we confess to you that there are oftentimes things that we delight in and worship that are far less than Christ. So Lord, whether it's grades or sports success or a dogged work ethic or whatever else that we would this morning, find ourselves putting before Jesus. We ask in Jesus' name that you would give us the liberty and the freedom to lay it down. God, there might be some this morning, as we talked about crucifying sin in our life, killing sin rather than managing it, there might be a man or a woman here this morning that says, I've been managing my sin. I've been accepting my sin rather than seeing it as an offense to a holy God. And and I want the Spirit to help me kill it in my life. God, whatever you purpose to do in this place today. We pray that as we stand and sing that you would do it for the glory of your Son and the good of your people. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.